Well, we're we're one short, and hopefully they'll uh, <coughs> we'll, we'll uh, have that resolved here momentarily. But uh, boy, it's been a long day already. Um, and uh, l l let me just start really quickly um, with a with a show of hands. Uh, how many of the three of you are optimistic on the outlook for the product tanker market? Um, show of hands. Okay, good. And I, I think I think I can speak with a high degree of confidence that that Robert probably is as well. Um, okay, so that's our backdrop. Now, uh, it's uh, as I said, it's it's been a long day, and I think, boy, it's this product tanker market has taken some time to work itself out. Uh, I get questions day after day. Uh, from investors who have who you know have been invested in various product tanker companies, and are just wondering when it's going to happen. Uh, we so so what I'm going to ask you is 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 give me your best pitch. Give all of us your best pitch. Why in the world is this finally going to work? And it's been a long day, like I said. And the faster that we get done with this the sooner that we get to the analyst panel, which is everyone is waiting for. So, uh, so, so give a good elevator pitch. Don't, don't make it boring. Let's, let's knock it out. So we're waiting for the right guy here. Yeah, here we go. You're right. You're right. <laughs> All right. That's, that's, uh, in case you missed it, we're looking for, uh, uh, to, to encourage, um, tired, uh, Product tanker investors and 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 reinvigorate them in a in a short manner of time here uh, because uh, I, I need some new ideas. So, what do you got? Who who can who can well, sell me and and I'll sell you. Okay, good, yeah, good. It's, it's it's pretty obvious that you should be buying the living daylights out of products. <laughs> All right, that's I, what I'm talking about. Primarily because. You guys never lie, okay? Managements can sometimes be conservative with the truth or sparing with the truth or even too overly exuberant with the truth. Hard to imagine. But you guys never lie, okay? So if you can remember, can you remember, oh, we've been in this room for some glorious moments. <laughs> I think around about 2011 and... I think another moment was October 2003. The crude oil market then was into the abyss, never to return again. And just like now, there are lots of seats, especially down the front, that are empty. Only took about six months before the crude oil market just poof, exploded into the moon. March 2016, dry bulk conference. Virtually empty, very depressed. Some of you almost suicidal. <laughs> Again, pretty empty. Today, empty. This room has never lied. So that's why it's time. You don't really need to know anything else. All right. I guess that we can move on to the next panel then. Great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. A any other uh, any other hard sells that? Uh, oh that wait, wait, wait. The private equity correlation. Okay. Or the private equity effect. 
Yeah. If you noticed that one of the market leaders acquired another one of the market leaders recently in a part stock or a stock transaction, and as soon as the um, acquiring company shareholders were able to start selling on September the 1st, they spent the whole 30 days selling as much as they could. In fact, just selling, 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 selling. That private equity correlation was exactly the same thing as we saw in dry cargo in March 2016. Again, it's never failed. It's perfect. It has a negative correlation of one. Again, another perfect reason to buy product tankers right now. All right, you'll, you'll have to let me, fill me in on which specific uh, private equity transaction that was later, but yeah. uh, any, any others uh, uh, that, that, that can really reinvigorate the market here in terms of a good reason to be buying it now? Well, I, I think, think um, you want, want please you can first. <laughs> I think maybe not perfect correlation, but at least uh, really good signs is obviously the drawdown on inventories that we've all been looking for and that this panel has on numerous occasions pointed to we need. And we are sort of halfway there uh, at a global level. However, there are pockets where inventories are down to the five-year averages. Uh, and that is where we're actually also seeing that freight rates are up. So for instance, over the last month, we're all experiencing freight rates in the Pacific is back to where they were for MRs sort of towards the end of 2015. So we would have two and a half years of really lackluster rates and for about a month coinciding and correlating with inventories in Pad 5 coming down dramatically from where they were. Freight rates are at the peak since December 2015. So that's for the smaller vessels, and LR1s and LR2s, pretty much the same story. A little less a degree, but I think LR1s is back to where they were last in April 16, and for the larger LR2s, it's sort of summer of 16 uh, that we are back to. I mean, All of this driven by inventories, and at a time when we're coming out of a couple of quarters with the, actually the peak deliveries. So I'm. Yeah, I think it's a very good time I mean, in to look at these correlations. Yeah, I think it's great. But look, in seriousness in, in this, is, is that it's incredible what's happened in this last you know, month or so. Very, very quietly, a bottom has clearly been put in. You may have even seen a bottom pass already in the sense that what he's saying is completely right. It's even stronger than that at the moment. An LR2 today is earning more than an LPG, is earning more than a CAPE, is earning more than a VLCC. Yet, I would think to you guys, if you were honest about it, none of you would think that. None of you would actually think that an LR2 is earning more than the biggest ships in each of the other major markets in the world because the product market has been so beaten down because it's, is it fell through the position. But as Jakob said, a combination of inventory drawdowns that are starting to level out, strong demand, end of deliveries, somehow that market is getting itself quietly better and, you know, looks okay. No, uh, what I wanted to say 
and I agree with what uh, Jacob said, but you know, naysayers, was, we've, always, we've heard a lot of stories in the last uh, six to 12 months, all oh, the markets are not picking up because the inventory levels are high. Okay, they're coming down. Uh, yeah, but the market is not going up because there's a lot of deliveries of ship. And then finally, slowing down the rhythm of deliveries of ship. Oh yeah, but you know, consumer demand is not there. Consumer demand is going up. So one at a time, I think, we're getting uh, demolished all these blockages that people were seeing in this market. So I think at the end of the day, either we find some new uh, valid reasons, which I can't seem to be finding, or we're really on the verge of something that's really going to change quite shortly, because everything that was there being said and had an impact uh, is slowly getting removed out of the market. So I think uh, uh, next, uh, next month, uh, we could start seeing some, some improvement, and for sure in 18, there could, could be some serious improvements out of the market, because I think a lot of the blockages on the road to improvement have been slowly removed. Yeah, and uh, you know, it's very important to see the order book as uh, it's coming down substantially in the next couple of years. Uh, we don't see any new building deliveries, um, very minimum, uh, and that's very encouraging going forward, uh, considering that uh, inventories are coming down and uh, demand is uh, stable. I also, I also think, look, joking aside, I think investors are sort of seeing this. There's a lot that the tape will will sort of show you. I think that, you know, Sting just, we just had a, you know, good success on the, the, the West Coast in, in a non-deal roadshow. We're changing investors over the summer. We've got at least four to five family firms in Europe by the stock in Sting that are very deep, deep pockets. They're acting far more like the traditional longs of 15, 20 years ago. And if you even take sort of today, this change of the, the last month, the product tanker stocks have closed today, even though, you know, probably fortunately our panel was after the close, all the product tanker companies were up and up in a healthy way and in good, good volume. All of them traded 140, 150% of volume today to the upside, whereas the other areas generally were fairly sort of flat. And so yeah, so, you know, I agree with everybody has said. We're just seeing a steady, good thing in the market. Hopefully, will I think even the MR market, which in the U.S. Gulf, which is probably the weakest market structurally at the moment after the hurricanes, will even that starting to sow some recovery now towards the end of last week. And we just like a nice normal winter, right, Marco? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think. Um, I think you know uh, we sometimes we tend to fall victims about uh, you know about the predictions that we make tend to happen, and I think uh, in this case I think there are some big changes in the fundamentals that have been happening, and probably slowly so nobody has been noticing them. Like Robert said, also in our case, uh, the stock has been going up the last uh, the last months. We had an equity raising in June that was uh, totally underwritten. So there is a lot of interest on investors, and normally markets are right when they see these things, you know, so. Okay, so um, uh, by and large, uh, I've heard and made all those arguments before, uh, with maybe the exception of the correlation between how full the room is. Um, 
but it hasn't really translated into sort of uh, better rates or frankly share prices in the last several years. So uh, that leads me to the next question that I'm almost always asked. The, the fundamentals look pretty obvious. Low supply, uh, inventory levels are falling, and demand is pretty good. Well, how can I be wrong? So how can I be wrong? Tell me the layout for me, if you have one, in any bear case scenario. Sorry, what did that word? That's, <laughs> that's a wrong, wrong question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would rather. What did that word mean? <laughs> We're still missing actually a couple of pieces in the bigger picture yeah. about why fundamentally it's right to look at this, uh, this market. I think most of the people here were also part of panels as product tankers in 2010 were looking towards the fact that you would have refinery capacity building itself up in the Middle East. And that was basically the storyline mm -hmm. for creating you know, a lot of the structures that we have today. And so far between 2012 and this year included, you have had a ramp of about 1.5 million barrels of daily capacity taking place in the Middle East. And you could sort of tell yourself and then that story has played out, but it's actually not true. Over the coming five years, we'll have 20% more than what was in the past five years. So another 1.8 million barrels of capacity coming on stream in the Middle East. So I think the demand side still got a lot of legs to walk on, which is not only about this inventory level coming down. Of course, you would have a buildup of inventory. It's now coming down. That's natural, that's a normal course of economic behavior. But fundamentally, there's still one piece that is still working in the favor of companies like ourselves, which is fundamentally that there's gonna be dislocation and that's of the refining capacity and you're gonna have longer ton mile. It's as simple as that. And I think that story is almost forgotten over the last couple of years because it's been a lackluster market. Uh, also, Ben, so like a, you've got certain things in, in step right now. Now the product market growth is following the container growth, is following the dry cargo growth. So it's actually built in proper demand recovery and structural recovery going forward. Uh, the other thing that's favorable to that at the moment, you ask what can go wrong, is one of the things that probably can't go wrong for a little while is the room again, right? The room's not, this room isn't here to fund speculative new building orders. I don't think any company could go out and raise a few hundred million dollars to go and order ships for you know, delivery end of 19 or 20. So that part of the discipline is going to be put on the industry. The second thing is the yard capacity is less than what it was before. So that is being put on. So apart from world economic slowdown, you know, it's great. We're, we're actually being, you know, we're actually being forced to be a little bit disciplined. So that takes away a lot of that risk. And, uh, you know, even if uh, you wanted to place orders today, I mean, you have uh, various financial constraints. I mean, I'm sure you've uh, discussed about that in previous panels, but uh, I'm sure you know that the uh, commercial banks are uh, 
getting less and less uh, day by day, and therefore uh, it's not easy to find finance for new building projects. Still, prices are going up, so prices of new building will not be going down. So, you know, also in this cycle, we have noticed that uh, the few yards were still building, also if there was kind of a lackluster market, but price of ships have not come, come down dramatically unless a certain class of ships, the seven, uh, the seven to ten years old ships, but modern ships have been keeping their values pretty much. And if you wanted to go for new buildings, there was, you know, instead of 34 million, it was down at 32. But, you know, there was not really a deep discount on, uh, on new buildings. So it was kind of a very strange market. That the market was not there, but all the symptoms, uh, but nobody was willing to bet strongly against the market. And now you have also steel price going up, as I said. So I think uh, that's another good thing that's happening. You know, replacement value is going to go up. And it's, uh, it's very important what uh, Robert mentioned about shipyard capacity. I mean, especially for the MR segment, which we are targeting. There are fewer and fewer shipyards building this type of vessels these days. Uh, as you know, the major player, the major constructor is uh, uh, Korea, and Korean shipyards have faced financial difficulties over the past years. There were, therefore, there, there is limited capacity, at, uh, for us, especially for MR vessels. Well, I don't know that I would categorize any of those answers as bearish, um, but that's okay. Uh, I think hopefully, hopefully you're right. I, uh, I certainly, uh, certainly hope that you're right. Is it because every product tanker stock that I cover, I have a buy on. So, um, at this point, though, I, I just want to say I, I, I'm going to finish early because I really uh, I, I like it when there's audience participation and good questions. So I'm just going to ask maybe one more question, which would give us plenty of time. So I want everybody to think of good zingers, um, good questions that they can pose to the panel that uh, that, that we can get to. But first, uh, b before we get there, my, my favorite question that I ask in almost every panel is, uh, so... Um, all of a sudden, these uh, very kind and generous investors in the room decide that your company deserves an extra $100 million that wouldn't be diluted in any sense. Uh, what would you go out and do with a new $100 million in your pocket? New ship, old ship, your own shares, uh, cash, pay down debt. What's the, what's the best use of $100 million of capital today? For sure, no new buildings. That's for sure. New buildings, you said, is what you would No buy. new buildings, <laughs> for sure. That's the last thing I think we should all be doing. That's the last thing we should be doing. Yeah, then. I agree with that. Mm -hmm. uh, we will go for the second-hand tonnage as well. We kind of got what we wanted. Um, we don't, we don't want to buy any of the oldest fleets. But if you force me to invest $100 million, I'd buy the living daylights out of Gola LNG because I think that Toroloff's going to get lucky. That's what we're all shooting for. Yeah. And actually, we have more than $100 million. We have a couple of $100 million sitting in our war chest, so I wouldn't do anything differently. I knew I liked okay. you. Yeah. <laughs> if, uh, if we were given 100, was to still scout for the right deals. You've got an old fleet too, haven't you? Thanks. <laughs> and we're performing better than you. So. Yes, yes. And you could perform even better if you had some new ships. <laughs> so you obviously can't get new, order new ones. We right? wouldn't do anything differently. We yeah. would still scout for the right deals yeah. and then act whenever the opportunity was there. 
Oh, that was that was good fun. Okay, so so now is your it's, opportunity. It, uh, it's always there, the opportunity. Trust me. <laughs> Uh, it now may be your opportunity. Um, so who, who has a, a good, now that they've had a few minutes to think of, of just a, back there, an excellent question uh, that, that I wasn't sharp enough to think of? Uh, this is for anyone on the panel. Um, just looking, these assets are 20, 25-year life assets, but, you know, there's been a lot of press, but not a lot of take up yet in terms of electric car penetration. If that were to accelerate over the next five or 10 years, what does that do to the gas, oil, and diesel markets from a demand standpoint? But also how does it, from an institutional investor perspective, how do you sort of think about you know, valuing that long-lived asset over that period of time? That's a good question. Incidentally, I think Korea said that they plan on taking two million diesel automobiles off the market in the next five years. So it's there's something actually going on there. Um, one uh, projection we have for gasoline going forward, uh, it's um, um, from 40%, which is today the uh, um, contribution of motor gasoline. It will go down to 36% by the year 2040. Um, but considering that other types of cargo, such as jet, jet uh, fuel, for example, will go up in consumption, this doesn't make a real difference for us. Um, I don't know if the rest of the panel has a different view of that. Mm. But, I mean, first I would argue that the useful life for a product tanker is not, you know, carrying clean petroleum products is not 20, 25 years. Maybe at a trade 25 years, trading dirty or trading crude but it won't be trading clean petroleum products for 20, 25 years effectively. So, and obviously it will crimp, you know, what would, it, it would reduce the total demand for products and it will depend, just as Eddie said, on how much is substituted elsewhere. Well, but I would also say five years, 10 years is I mean, I know that's like how many cycles? Three more cycles before we get to that point? Yeah, and especially I think this is a question that you would have if somebody is starting for a new building project today. However, uh, I think to, to answer a little bit to your question, I think uh, as Eddie was saying, I think there's going to be a change in mix. I think in absolute numbers, probably the consumption will be going up because there's going to be a, a lower percentage of uh, fossil fuel uh, needed, but the demand is going to be going up. So in absolute terms, probably you'll have a higher number of, uh, or similar number to be transported. And I think then slowly we'll be moving into a more mature market where companies uh, will be growing mainly through acquisitions. Uh, in mature markets, uh, uh, you can't have uh, growth uh, through internal growth, but will be slowly uh, growth acquisition. So you'll have some few very large companies will be concentrating a large share of the market. So I think this moving forward in a longer term horizon, I think growth will be achieved that way, of fewer companies getting a bigger share, a bigger slice of the pie. I mean, you'd hope that people would, um, you know, if they're looking, if they're worried about that, 15, 20, 25 years, you'd hope that, you know, that would be another reason along with the restraint on capital at the moment as to why you may see a delay in new buildings in the products and extend the present 
recovery in this cycle for a longer point. But none of you really look much further than like a month or two anyway, really, do you? So. I certainly don't. Uh, any, uh, any other questions out here, any good ones? Okay, back there. Thank you. Um, for everyone, can you talk about the pluses and minuses of being a public company? Oftentimes you hear folks say that uh, shipping could perform better as a private company. Do you believe that? And so the shipping? In terms of being a publicly owned or privately owned shipping company, both the, private I guess company. as public companies, all of you, the, the pluses and minuses of being public and then I guess broadly, do, do, you, do you agree with the notion that shipping can perform better if they're privately owned? I mean, we, you often hear people say that. We, we have no real proof, I guess, but uh, just your view of being publicly owned or privately owned, how that affects your performance. Personally, I think that public as well as private companies can perform really well depends obviously on the governance and it depends on the management. So it's not necessarily whether you are public or not. What I like about being public is that we are in dialogue with investors constantly as Robert was just pointing to. We have a circular uh, trade with our investors. We, from time to time, will have larger investors that would like to play in and others that will come out. And the dialogue and insight we get from being public and being accountable creates value for us. And I think we have a very open dialogue with both our current investors and potential investors about our industry. So personally, I don't think that public companies or private companies are the winners. I think you set yourself up for uh, being a premier company by having good governance, good management teams. And I also think that you need to have quite efficient and fast decision processes. And I can see that companies that fail to have that, whether private or public, they're probably the ones in our industry that is uh, having the biggest problems. I think some of the, you know, the, the greatest successes have come from those private people who've been able to mix both. You know, in a, in a funny way, a, you know, a, I'm sure a lot of John Fredrickson's wealth is, is a result of what he did with his public companies and the way he achieved liquidity in those back in the last cycle. You see today an extraordinarily successful private family over many, many years, the, you know, the, the, the YK Powell family or what's termed as the BW group today has both private and public and they've spent time building their public side in BW Gas and they've spent time in their in crude, in DHT, now becoming a significant shareholder in DHT. And this was a family that once owned more VLCCs than any other group or company there was on earth back in the 80s. So it's like Jacob said, I mean, some people have, have done well in the private side and some people have done well in the public side. What I will say is that debt Apart from the gods, you know, the five or six super billionaires out there, the debt side is going to increasingly 
be easier to achieve in the public markets than in the private market. The lenders now are going to be feel far more comfortable to lending to you know, proper public companies with liquidity, access to capital, access to issuing stock in bad times. Uh, for us, uh, being the youngest uh, public company here in the group, uh, it's been challenging being public in the last couple of years. Um, capital markets were not there really for shipping. Um, we're there, we're, um, we, have, we have our hopes high. Um, um, we, uh, um, we, 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 we came through a very good market in tankers in the year 2015, but unfortunately we didn't see the appetite and the interest from investors there. Um, but uh, we think that uh, you know it's about optionality being public and it's about finding alternative uh, capital and this is what we hope to find in the near future. We think that by turning the market, the investor appetite will come back for uh, um, product tanker companies. Um, I come from a background that uh, was a private company, still part of the group is still private. So I can see both sides a little bit of the whole equation. I would tend to agree with Robert that for sure lenders like uh, transparency that you achieve in a, in a public company. Uh, and uh, I think that a public company can be ran successfully as a private company as long as you keep it uh, uh, strong corporate governance and uh, you tend to keep the bureaucratic level of the, within the company at a low level. Furthermore, I must say that uh, the advantage of being public is the fact that you have a lot more optionality, like Eddie was saying. Normally, in tougher times, you have more alternatives, especially on the debt side, on the, on the, on the liability side. You have much more alternatives being a public company than not being a private company. So I think... I thought, Mark, I always thought the reason you were public was because it was a really nice lunch at the Milan Stock Exchange. Mm -hmm. so. We like it, but we don't go that often to Milan. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so that's that's a uh, a good set of answers, I think. Um, and yet, I, I don't know this for sure, but I would suspect that you would all think that your shares are trading below their net asset value. So the market is telling you, boy, I wish you were private, or maybe it's a better idea to be private. Is that transient, or do you think that as Marco was saying, the market matures and capital becomes uh, really truly available only to the bigger and better players that are public and whatnot, that, 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 that you can get a, a, a sustained premium. But th this, this is a market point. It's got nothing to do with yeah. any of that, right? So every time in a cycle that they, you're in a down position. So in, nine, in 2000 and I don't know, three, four, five. You could argue that the companies then were trading below their net asset value. Every single day then, in theory, they were telling you not to be public. But thank God those companies did remain public because when you got into 2007 and eight, the market was willing to pay ridiculous multiples of their net asset value. I mean, some of the dry cargo companies were trading at almost two and a half times their real net asset value. The market got so hyped up 
that it was e analysts were even giving credit in earnings for ships that weren't going to deliver for like two and a half, three years' time. So I don't think this will change. And that was the same in the previous cycle in the 1980s. In so 1984, 85, companies were trading below their net asset value. Get to 1989, early part of 90, companies were trading above their net asset value. And look, I get, with Robert, uh, let me, let me find out one thing. I think we all have a history of, of seeing our companies trading a net asset value or above and then period much below. So the fact that we're still all public, I think can mean two things. A, that we believe in a public company, or B, that we are stupid. So I don't know, you can, uh, we, didn't, we didn't take it private. So I think, uh, <laughs> I think number one probably is a good idea. I think all of us here on this panel, we believe that there is an advantage in, uh, in having a, a public company rather than a private company. I think and for, uh, I think there's many and advantages. In, and in many ways, you can, it's, it's in many ways it can be logical. I mean, I've given up trying to argue on this in asset value things because sometimes the market is very smart despite, you know, let's say my cynicism. So it would have been the smart thing to do to be for product tankers, certainly in the last 15 months, to have been trading below net asset value because that was an indication that they were making all in negative cash returns. So even though the prices themselves of the assets remain the same, you know, if you weren't earning your depreciation, effectively you were, you were running yourself down. The same as if when the market turns the other way and it's generating cash, yeah. I mean, the bit that is a little bit more extraordinary is the turn. It's like, it's a bit silly that dry cargo right now is trading below the asset value. I think the key it, word is uh, consistency. You cannot, yeah. at a certain point, be public, and then you go private, and then you go public. At a certain point, you have to be consistent. And I think the consistency is that the world is moving towards public companies. And I think uh, that's why we're here where we are in uh, uh, net asset value, positive or negative, I think. But, but th this is where, for the investor, it, it's the timing. It's why the opportunities are sure. just higher, you know, higher now. The risk has been, you know, it's not just because the cycle's at a lower point and turning. It's that you are being paid for your risk with the stocks trading below an asset value. Great. Well, um, is there one more? Anybody else or just, just a question that is burning on the inside? If not, we can get on to what everybody was waiting for, the analyst panel. Okay. All right. Well, it, it, it does look like everyone's eager to move on to the, they, the they should, best thing. Yeah, but, they, but they don't need us. <laughs> just remember, you don't need these panels. You just need to call a quorum, right? Next, so next capital link. Nicholas, you just say, okay, everybody believes in crude oil, enter the room, right? Do a count, report it. Everybody believes in dry, enter the room. Be very efficient, and I guarantee you it will be correct. All right. Sounds like a good, uh, good opportunity yeah. for some hedge funds. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, thank you guys very much. We thank appreciate you. it. Thanks.